And this is the word of the Lord, amen? amen. Thank you for reading, brother. It's rare this, uh, this last minute for me to call an audible, having prepared a sermon, but I'm going to for my introduction. Just feel convicted that what I would have used for an introduction doesn't fit, and rather I just need to be plain here at the beginning. You are not in control of your life. I'm not in control of my life. The illusion of control is powerful, and the illusion of being able to think that we can determine on our own an outcome in our lives without help from God is ludicrous, and yet this is a struggle. The idea of being content and giving up control of your life in the face of death or hard ideas or difficulty is what this passage hinges on today. Ecclesiastes, and here the preacher is in no rush to get past a lot of really hard truths. And the chief one today is that we need God's wisdom to free us from the illusion that we're in control of our lives. We need God's wisdom to help us find rest, true rest. The preacher makes no qualms about life's brutal nature, and our desire to wrestle it into submission on our terms. The preacher, as you heard read, makes it clear that our attempts to do this are as successful as bottling the wind, trying to capture the wind. There's an evil paradox of life that he points out, which is true, and it's what I started out warning us about. Try to control your life, and it will control you. You must... Give up what you think is control, for your depravity is too much of an evil thing. It stops the good that you could have when you try to grab control of things. Here's the sermon in one sentence this morning. If we give up control of what we think is good and pleasant and rest in the sovereignty of God, we will gain that which is truly good and pleasant. I'm going to say it again. If we give up control of what we think is good and pleasant and rest in the sovereignty of God, we will gain that which is truly good and truly pleasant. The search for help amidst such illusions of control that you and I live under um, continues for the preacher this morning in our text, and it does so in by calling us out in three things. Three points the preacher calls us out in this morning. He'll call us to give up what we think is good in verses one through six. He'll call us to give up what we think is pleasing in verses seven through nine. And then he will call us to rest in the sovereignty of God. Give up what we think is good, give up what we think is pleasing, and rest in the sovereignty of God. Let's talk about the preacher's points of giving up what we think is good. First point in our sermon is found in the first 
six verses of the passage you just heard. And it's best understood by asking two questions. This first point of giving up what we think is good is best understood by asking, what do we think is good? And what does God say is good? What do we think is good? And what does God say is good? What do we, what do me and you think is good? Natural man, what does he think is good? Well, the first part of verse one says that there's something evil that the preacher has observed. And, you know, it may sound like we're asking the wrong question if we're saying the question to ask is, what do we think is good? However, that question actually is what gets answered in our text right after verse one's observation, okay? What he sees as evil, he points out mankind understands wrongly to be good. What is the answer that the preacher gives in these first Six verses. What do we think is good in this life? Good to have. What are good goals? He, he gives us a portrait of these. Look in verses two and three and six. The beginning of all those verses say, it's a man, as you heard read, a man who God gives some things to. He gives wealth and possessions and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he wants or desires. It's a man who can father a hundred children and live many years in verse three, so that the days of his years are many. It's in six, a man who should live a thousand years twice over. What's he doing in these verses, in verses one through six? He's answering this question, what do we think is good? He's pointing out a portrait of a man or many men that God has given some really great things to and some very specific blessings. I want you to read this in the context that it was given because context is important. The Hebrews who were reading and understanding this as scripture from God, when it was written in Solomon's day, when it came to the categories of what's just been mentioned, wealth, possession, living a long life, having many years, having lots of children that you father and bring into the world, these for them would have been reminders, reminders of God's covenant and God's promise to them as his people. That's what would have reminded them as they read this wisdom. And since the time of their forefather of the faith, Abraham, and all his descendants, God's people were hopeful for this stuff. They would have said, what do we think is good? Living in the land that God has promised us. Having our enemies beneath us as we rule in this land. Having the wealth. Having generations of children and God's blessing. You see, they, the reader understands riches and wealth mixed with material goods. And for them, it's also this idea of honor that's there. Because they would have been perceived by surrounding nations as being respectable. And being there. This is the decadence of Solomon's wisdom saying, here is God's wisdom and they would have honor. I mean, to hear this is for them to think we would be Adam and not fail to sin. We would have a garden, but we wouldn't sin in it. What more could someone want? I mean, for the Hebrew, the author in these few verses, as we're looking at the good and what they would call good, he's pointed those things out. It's like an equivalent to the American dream for us. We would look at our life cut away the bad and ask, hey, what do we think is good? And we would say things similar to this in our own terms. Make sure I have a nice house. Make sure I have good, reliable transportation and good cars. I want to have a lot of fun. I need a deep relationship with a spouse. I want healthy kids. 
maybe a couple of them, not too many, a picket fence, a nice place, a quiet life, a good life, a comfortable life. What more could a man or a woman want today? It is very clear the preacher has this hypothetical man as the main illustration of the evil burden that he's talking about in one, and there's no, uh, there's no more for him to want. That's the idea of, of this man that's being painted in these verses. He can't want anymore. A good way to think about, you know, what does man, what do we think is good as you read these verses, let's step into just the daily terms, uh, the daily idea of this blessing. I mean, think about a man whose bed is so big and uh, so great. He had whatever pick of mattress to rest on in the night. He, had a my, he has a my pillow wrapped around his neck. He can't get more comfortable. He wakes up in prosperity. He gets ready with the help of servants, uh, largely eliminating any issue that he would have with working to provide for himself. He goes and eats all his meals that are prepared. They're healthy. They're delicious. They're endless in their options. Or they're all at his disposal. He gets dressed in clothes that are nicest, the nicest on earth, fitted for his body, tailored out of the finest fabrics. His friends are in abundance. His days are passed with wonderful activity. He's busy day to day because he has fun. When he wants to play, he plays. When he wants to nap, he naps. When he eats, he eats what he wants. He has it all. Lacks nothing in his fleshly, worldly appetite. The Ecclesiastes preacher answers the question, what do we think is good? What does a natural man think is good? This life, this life I just described, a day in that life, that's the good life. It was true then, as the reader would read and think about this man being presented, it's true today. However, remember though, we're asking what natural man thinks is good. He may think this is the best, but God is using the preacher to point out the evil in this thought, right? Look at verse one again. He said, there is an evil I have seen in this world and it is something that lies heavy on mankind. The preacher says this evil that he has seen, it lies on a man, it, it's heavy on him. What does that mean? What does it mean? Well, other translations show that this is understood to mean a burden that is on all of us, all of humanity. They feel this burden and the question is, do all people really feel burdened about this topic? Is that the preacher's intent to say this? And I think yes, because he's speaking vaguely enough on the subject because he wants to throw all of us in the lot. These questions are vague and general. These statements are large at this point because we're coming to the middle point of this book and we're trying to recap a lot of, a lot of stuff right here at this moment. And so... Either way, the point is made that what we would say is good, what we think is good, he has exposed right here in verse one, though he gives these, to say very plainly, the answer is, this is grievous evil. If you pursue these things, what you call good is gonna betray you. What you call good is gonna fail you. He's trying to point out the natural sinful bent of every fallen person. He's learned this. He's taught us this. He's reiterating it. He's teaching us in the midst of these verses that we call a lot of things good, and yet we find a reality that they're not good to us. They're not applied to our hearts. 
which is the second question that gets answered in these first six verses. I mean, the answer is, what do we think is good? Well, all this stuff and, and all this prosperity and a family and these good things. But what does God say is good? The preacher shows the answer a few times as well in those same verses. We skipped them, but let's not now. He, it appears in the negative, okay? What he lacks is the very thing that God actually approves as good. Look in verses two and three and six again. God does give wealth. He does give possessions. He does give honor so that a man lacks nothing that all that he desires. Yet, look at this, God does not give him power to enjoy them. Or in verse three, the days of his years are many, but his soul, his heart, his soul is not satisfied with life's good things. Or in verse six, he should live a thousand years twice over. That's hyperbolic, right? I mean, it's big language. No one lives for 2,000 years, right? That's eternal language. But if he could, and he could have it all, yet enjoy no good? You see these three references? God makes no apologies for his actions in this text against man, and the preacher knows it. But it may be hard for me and you to see and answer. I hope in reading that to you, you hear God says some things are good. He's just speaking negatively here about what me and you can be deceived to think is good. We hear that God says the power to enjoy life, being satisfied with good things and enjoying the good things he grants are within God's power. And maybe we instantly question God's motives. The preacher is asking, and he's asking, why tell us what you say is good and then not give it to man? That, that question arises, I think, as you hear that first very provocative statement about God. God almost seems indicted in this text, right? It's almost like God is saying, I won't give you the good. I'll withhold it. Is the preacher being so bold to say that God has taken the power away just by his free and sovereign choice? We must ask ourselves, is that in God's character? Let me stop you right there before you or me would get out of control because you see, from our perspective, it's the wrong question. And the answer, therefore, is no. No, it's not. Nor should it be understood by us. The scriptures from the beginning have always been clear that good things belong to God and that God has freely given them to mankind to enjoy. Just quickly think about the first man. The first man had all of this that we're talking about, and he had no sinful appetite until his own presumption and temptation to sin came into the picture. Do you remember that story in Genesis that we, that we love Adam freely choosing to rebel against God's good wealth, Adam choosing to rebel against God's possession and honor that he had bestowed on him? Do you know what the Lord did not do? The Lord did not stop him. He did not stop Adam. Why? It's because he's a loving father who would not force his son to do something. He is simultaneously, however, a powerful father that when that son does something, he will punish what is deserved for such foolish rebellion. That was the narrative then. Here's the preacher pointing out. Man's promise from God that he will surely die is true. And one outworking of that is right here in the final part of verse 2. Man is without the power of God on his own to enjoy the good gifts that belong to God and are given to him. Said another way, it is impossible for man to enjoy the good things of this life that come from God apart from God. 
Therefore, it is exactly what the preacher described. It is a grievous thing, a great evil under the sun. With free will and choice, the preacher is saying, you would control your life by calling evil good, calling good things evil. And then be surprised when you're unsatisfied with what you have that's good if you were able to get it. And I'm here to tell you, God prevents you from getting the satisfaction you seek. God does. And he doesn't apologize. Not only is God's good out of reach because of sin, but what you have doesn't bring joy to you like you want it to because God stands against it, but rather a stranger even enjoys it, he said in here. A very, another layer of vanity and great evil, the preacher says. I love what Doug Wilson comments on this. He says, God frequently gives men many external blessings without giving them the spiritual taste buds to enjoy what they have. He says, we metaphorically see a man without any taste buds who can afford the finest restaurants. The finest chef in the world can only fix him gray, cold oatmeal. Well said. And, and sin makes the man in the life of this man like that. What God calls good is always out of his reach. What do we think is good? All the things that God hates, it looks like. And what does God say is good? All the things we can't enjoy because we hate what he says is good. It's despairing. It's a despairing illustration. But look, you know, as you read this, if you read it carefully, the preacher isn't finished with it. I mean, his main illustration is what I've just explained. But yet he paints it in a darker light. He paints it in comparison as well. So he doesn't just say, you say this is good and you would pursue it to your death. God actually can define what's good, but he prevents you from having it because you do it on your own terms, not his. He gives it to a stranger even. I mean, all that is enough, right? But no, there's also the tool of comparison that the preacher must show us before he moves on to the next point. You saw it when he said in verse three that this person also has no burial. You see that in your ASV? He also has no burial. You know, Hebrew scholars actually note there in that verse that, uh, that and this is a quote from some, some, a good commentary, that this Hebrew is traditionally treated as part of a description of our man's sorry final state. Like it just kind of includes it. And that's where the ESV goes. But, you know, but there's a, another way to interpret this, that um, this idiom here, this idea of he has no burial it's the idea that he's so bad, he's, he's deprived of a proper burial, but you know, preceding this, there's this hyperbolic speech that's been happening, right? Um, and afterwards as well. It's the idea that it could be translated like this. If he were to live 100 years, and even if he were never buried, that's how it can be translated. Even if he were never buried, he was never dead, i.e. he could live forever, and he goes on in verse six to you know, continue in that, right? You saw that. Even if he were to live for 2,000 years, like it says, and not understand God's goodness, the preacher compares it and says that he would be better off. Rather than be like that, it would be better for him to be born dead. He says it would, it's better for a stillborn child than for someone to live 
two millenniums worth of having common grace, but not having the understanding from heaven of how to really be fulfilled in your heart. It's better to be a dead child in this earth. Verse three through five, he explains that, doesn't he? I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it, the stillborn child, it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest after, rest rather than he. Look, we recoil at this comparison, and rightly so. If anyone has dealt with the pain and the heartache of miscarriage, then they know that this is no light topic to bring up flippantly. And I tell you, the preacher is not treating the topic flippantly, but he's using it as a point of comparison. The point here is not to conjure up feelings of sadness from parents who have lost children, but rather to focus on the child itself, the stillborn baby itself. It is not a comparison that turns on the horrid reality of stillborn birth, as horrible as it is is, but rather on the level of misery, the preacher is allotting to the person that he's been describing. We may be tempted to say that a life lived, you know, in this world, uh, even wrongly, without the joy of the Lord, you know, a life that experiences common grace, that's got to be better than not having a life at all, like a stillborn baby, right? But this is not true. The preacher's saying that's not true. On the surface, it may seem that the way of Understanding our lives biblically is to understand that life, you know, is more than just what you live. I mean, take this baby, for instance. I mean, we as Christians and as these people reading in this context, they understand that life begins not when a baby comes out of the womb, but even in conception. And even prior to that, it's from the foundations of the world, according to God's foreknowledge, that he has a day set for us. We come into being in our mother's womb. You know, the author of Ecclesiastes demonstrates this later. We'll see in Ecclesiastes 11.5 him say this, just as you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the works of God who makes everything. So the author is unclear on how it happens, but, but what he assumes is that God is with us even before that baby was Born, stillborn. Before I explain, will you just think with me for a second? It's really interesting to realize that Solomon himself, the likely author of this, has an older sibling of his in heaven as he reflects on these things. You see, David, his father, had another baby in sin with his mother, Bathsheba, didn't he? The child was ill. The child died shortly after birth, essentially the child of this illustration, a stillborn child only living a couple of days, never enduring any more than that. And David, his father, had spoken as it was recorded in 2 Samuel 12 and said, that child is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again, David said? No, but you know what the Lord has preserved for his people in this wonderful promise? David said, I shall go to him. I shall go to that child, but he will not return to me. Showing what? Showing that David believed that the child was to be in heaven. I mean, this was the trusted teaching at the time. David would go to him. This was a revelation from God. Children dying in an untimely manner is a grace of God in David's mind. In the sense that, as John MacArthur says, to be 
To be the life of a stillborn is to go straight into heaven, to be safe in the arms of God. This type of teaching is, is where you know, there's relief, right? But, but listen, this relief biblically is understood by the reader in its context because this child never knew the rebellion that this illustration is trying to underscore. He never knew the disobedience. He never knew the senseless rat race of getting all that you would say is good and forgetting that God is the one who could give you true satisfaction. I mean, this comparison raises the stakes. It raises the mistake of fallen man to a place to realize that when he loves what is good over God and that God is really going to keep him from the truest good. Our first point finds its conclusion there. We must give up what we think is good. We must understand what God says is good. That's what the preacher wants to call us to. And his second point is similar. His first point, give up what we think is good. His second point, give up what we think is pleasing. Our two questions are going to serve us again here. In verses 7 through 9, he does it in half the time. What do we think is pleasing? And what does God show and say is actually pleasing? Look at verse 7 with me. What do we think is pleasing? Verse 7, all the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. In other words, we very simply crave what gives us pleasure. This is not positive. It is, it is a great evil as well as point one was. The preacher is condemning what we think is pleasing, what me and you in our natural state, our sinful state think is pleasing. And what that is that he's describing in this proverb, this is a proverb in the middle of this. And in this simple idiom, this pithy idea, he's trying to encapsulate all, the Powerball culture, the, the desire for the best of everything, the lottery of life, your desires on full blast. In this verse, the preacher strips man bare. In this simple proverb, you get stripped down to base instinct. He exposes base desire in people. We are people who at our core, we serve ourselves. Apart from God and his goodness, we find it impossible to fully constrain our fleshly desires, every single one of them. And the examples of this idiom, you know, pointing to, to this insatiable appetites, what that means is unsatisfied sinful desire. The illustrations are numerous. So for brevity, we will just take one from the scriptures this morning. We'll take sexual immorality. Whether you are in the throes of this struggle or not, sexual immorality is something all of us face. It's one of this appetite not being satisfied, proverb wisdom that he's talking about. It's something all of us face, a base instinct. The Bible never denies it. You know, the Bible is honest from the beginning of its pages. And you will find in Scripture concerning uh, sexual immorality a, a comparison um, to many things. You will find rape and you will find incest, deviance and orgies, addictions and bestiality. You'll find polygamy and homosexuality and heterosexual sin. You'll find flippant lust and all of this, not on your newsfeed, which you know, but in the pages of Holy Writ, you will find the honest evaluation. Through the centuries of humanity, the appetite of unsatisfied sexual deviance has left its mark on every single kingdom and empire. You will find the toil of men for his mouth and his unsatisfied appetite in this sin corresponding to every major time period. 
You can see every presidential seat, every chairman, every world leader, every spiritual advisor. You will see pastorates, entire ministries, kings, bishops, priests. You will find teachers and professors, construction workers, teachers, neighbors. All of them will have their categorical match of people being unwilling to give up their insatiable desire for evil and lust and it crushing on a grand scale often what they have built. I'm not saying that every single president in every country throughout all of time has had grandiose failure in this area. I'm just saying you can't find any place in culture that there isn't one example to match, one story, one person, one leader where sexual immorality is not reached. We live in a statistically driven world to a point of madness, but you know that studies show Nonetheless, that 90% of those who sexually abuse children, they do so because they themselves were assaulted as children. If we focus on this one vice of man, just one amidst this verse seven proverbial warning, we can see that we're disciple makers of our appetites. Our raging appetites cause the most devastating effects and this one highlights it. For what? For what purpose? To fulfill an appetite that's never satisfied? Yes, sadly, we simply find it pleasing to harm another person in this way. All the toil for man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. Remember, this is an idiom, a proverb uh, cast over all categories. I'm just focusing on this one issue, but brother, sister, don't be naive. You can place this into any category. Natural man eats until he's sick. He builds wealth until he's His bones are brittle and he falls headlong into his field of of what he's built. You can do this in studying. You can do this in every place of life. I think the scriptures grip a hold of sexual morality, though. That's why I've picked it. I mean, let's just pick the clearest example in Old Testament writ. You know the story of the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. You know the story that that city had in it Lot, a, a a descendant of the promise, Abraham's nephew. And, and in Genesis 19, you know, there's this record of the Canaanite culture in Sodom that had descended into grotesque sexual violence. In that city, all the men, Moses records explicitly on purpose, all the men desire to make a ganged assault on beautiful angels in the likeness of men that have come to Lot's house. Lot gives his own daughters, they won't have it. God judges this city. How? With fire and sulfur, he rains down from heaven a terrible scene in Genesis 19. The only survivors, Lot and his daughters, not even his wife, who looks longingly on the past of that city to be turned into a pillar of salt. All we have, Lot and his two daughters. The story ends at that point when they get out and the the reader, if you've read Genesis 19, takes a bit of a breath. When you, it's hard. I mean, you're sad to see that, that everyone sees the fire and smoke rising. But at least the insatiable desire for sin has been, has been wounded, right? And you, as soon as you would catch your breath in Genesis 19, you're short-winded again. Why? Because Lot's daughters prove something very wicked about what our little verse seven in Ecclesiastes is saying. I mean, living in the preacher's memory is this type of teaching. It's Old Testament. It would have helped them to understand deeper. That's why I'm teaching it today. But you know, Lot's daughters devise a plan to get their father drunk. It says they lie with him two different nights. 
And R. Kent Hughes says it rightly. He says, here we witness the rebirth of Sodom in a cave. Turns out the problem was the issue of the heart, not just the city. And this is the idea we need to uncover biblically with this proverbial statement about man's unsatisfied desires. Okay, When they seem to be killed out by your own effort, when they seem to be stamped out, even when they seem to be burned under the fire and sulfur of heaven itself as a witness, the heart gives birth to them yet again, doesn't it? That's what the preacher is saying here. He's saying man is in, insatiable, so bent on destroying himself apart from God. It's so evident. This is just one. This issue reveals the base issue. It's why our culture is, is raving mad today among the current revolution uh, concerning uh, the sexual revolution or the ideological revolutions or all these things. It's not political. It's insatiable. That's the fallen condition of man as the preacher sees it here. No satisfaction. He calls pleasure good and pursues it to the worst degree. Any issue to this point, the preacher says, is going to hurt us. This appetite for sinful desire is a problem. It's the problem. So what does man think is pleasing? A lot of bad things. What does God show? What does God say is pleasing? Well, does God show us in these verses? Yes, but he does so by illusion. Okay, God, the preacher alludes to what is to be pursued. Look at verse eight. What advantage has the wise man over the fool? What does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living or those who aren't poor? The preacher asks on behalf of the truth. What is the point of living this way? As much as we like to think that, you know, some will be wise enough to overcome these damaging desires, we're reminded that no advantage comes by our own merit right here. Look what he does very quickly. What I just told you, unpacking verse 7 in a, in a very dark way. I hope, you, I hope you're, you're, you have enough holiness and enough desire for good to recoil from that. That can't be me. And instantly in verse 8, he says, you would draw that distinction, wouldn't you? You would claim wisdom. He says, what does the wise man and the fool have in the light of what I'm trying to talk about? Nothing. There's no distinction. What is a poor man who can walk into a very rich place with the, the right clothes on and deceive everybody? Is he really deceiving God? You see, there's illusions behind these questions. We like to draw lines. We say things like, hey, be on the right side of history. Vote for this legislation. Identify yourself in this way. Pick this tribe. I am not that. I'm this. And he says, are you wise? Are you a fool? Do, do you have... Poor man faking out the rich. Look at the hypocrisy of your own life. For what purpose is it? Bleeding pleasures that don't please God. See, he's alluding that God can plea, uh, be pleaded, uh, excuse me, pleased by us. Th that's in these questions, but it's not gonna come through that pursuit. Look at verse nine. The illusion is clearer here, right? Uh, better, better, so we have some hope. Better is the sight of the eyes and the wandering of the appetite. This also, though, is vanity and a striving after wind. The illusion is clearer here. What pleases God and leads us into our conclusion, what is that? Well, it starts here. This isn't the end of it, but here's where it starts. If you're going to take the preacher's advice up to this point, you're going to realize that what you have in front of you, what you can see, if you'll stop looking at other people's stuff, 
If you'll stop looking at what you think you desire, right? If you'll just look at what's right in front of you, better is to see what's right here, you will realize there is plenty to condemn. There is plenty to point out that all your decisions are thwarted by sin, that all your desires are insatiable, okay? He's trying to say, forget now verse seven because you don't want to look verse seven in the face. You think you understand your sin. You do not want to see an untamed man in yourself. He's saying what you can see, he's alluding, what you can see should be enough. In other words, what is concrete in your life that's hard and difficult, whether it's trial you can't control or it's temptation that you fail in. He's saying what is nasty enough about life is enough. Why don't you start there and get an answer? He's saying unchecked sin will bring unwanted surprises. Okay, so deal with what's in front of you. The Lord is pleased when you and me realize how unchecked and how dangerous our sin actually is. For when we get that, then we get the biggest help that comes from him. And that's what he's alluding to. Now, guys, the preacher uses this word that we've seen now six times. He uses this word striving after wind, this idea of chasing after the wind. This is now the seventh time in this book that you've heard that. That's not a mistake. It's a literary device you remember that these people trust and worship the same God you and I do who in seven days created this whole thing, right? Out of his love, he creates the world in seven days in completion, God rests, there's this hope. And so the preacher taking a very hopeful thing has now given you seven reasons that you, if you go back and listen to the sermons or study in the past, that when you chase after something that's not God's will, you're chasing wind. This is kind of the halfway point. I think we need to get this for the, the conclusion. You see, in summary, he said what we think we know is good is not. God must determine our good. What we think is pleasing to God is not. God must determine what's pleasing for him. He's alluding to it. And then he points to this striving after wind. He points to restlessness, okay? And so... We're ready to receive, I think, which is right at the center of the book, the answer. The answer to tell us what's good of how to please God. And hear me if you're weary this morning, the rest that we seek. Augustine said uh, in his confessions, our souls are restless until they rest in him. The preacher has worked hard to set up, I think, verses 10 through 12, which is our final point. You have to give up, number one, what, what you think is good. You have to give up what you think is pleasing to God and you have to rest instead in the sovereignty of God. That's the third point here. In just these three verses, masterfully, he shows the sovereignty of God is defined, it's denied, and it's discussed. That's where he goes with the sovereignty of God. He's gonna define it, he's going to deny it, show the denial of it, and he's gonna discuss it. Look at verse 10, that's sovereignty defined. You wanna know what sovereignty is? Here you go. Whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known what man is and that he, man, is not able to dispute with one stronger than him. What's the preacher's definition of sovereignty? The he and the man is, is, is against something that's stronger than him. Do you know what that is? It's God. God is stronger than every single person. In theology, we call God omnipotent. 
It means he has unlimited power and he's able to do anything. (laughs) Ask yourself the question, why does God's supreme omnipotence appear as a conclusion of sorts to the first half of this entire book? Is this idea, this definition, is it centerpiece for good reason? Let me tell you this morning, I think so. I think so. The idea among mankind that, that we can get away with our own desire for create excuse me, for created things, that we can do so on any term we deem fit. That idea lends us in opposition to the lordship of God as creator, right? I mean, the power and presence and sovereignty of God's omnipotence, it's not to be questioned, it's not to be challenged, and it's not to be trifled with. For man to feel his insatiable desires, as we have seen for six chapters in this book, to have all the pleasures he wants, to understand community, to have hard work, to, be, to perceive things that are good, to have unexplainable bad and difficulties, and for him to not acknowledge God who has put eternity into his heart, for any reason, is ludicrous. A right answer from God to this type of pride among his created order is to display his power as a reminder. The preacher for six chapters and weeks for us has been concerned that me and you are quickly able to lose sight of God's power. We're drones, monotonous in our activity, forgetting that this activity is with a purpose and it's connected to a holy creator. And the warning for the preacher in verse 10 bursts forward. We forget the right divide in our justifications. And he's right to remind us. It's daring because it's going to make you more restless for a moment, right? Because you get a little frustrated when you've tried to do it on your own and God shows up and you realize everything you had is, is, is bankrupt now. But that's the good. Shailen says it in poetic form in, in his uh, poem, Spread His Fame. He says that God is beyond our vocabulary. God's actions, they vary. His wrath is scary, and all of his adversaries, they're imaginary. That's what the preacher's saying. The Bible's language entertains for our teaching. It just entertains for our teaching this idea that we're actually an adversary of God. Okay, the Bible teaches you're an enemy of God, but it only does so to allow the opportunity for you to peek at God's holiness. The actual fate of being an adversary of God is exactly what verse 10 is saying. No one disputes with God. No one is stronger with him. All will be toppled if they try to go against his will. I mean, that's serious language. And to have a peek at that, to get a peek at God's holiness is enough. It should be to get our hearts to that right response that we want, to do something with what is good and to try to understand how to please him. A right understanding of God's power should do that, the preacher says. Sovereignty defined. Yet sovereignty gets denied. Verse 11, here's how we sometimes react The more words, the more vanity, he says. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow on a wall. 
under the sun. Who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? And the passage ends. <laughs> Why these questions? Why, why this statement? He wants to point out that we may define sovereignty, but often this is where our discussion of it ends, and that's bad for us. That's what he's saying. Well, when you find in Scripture the clear teaching on God's sovereign power displayed, you need to make note that the response is not verse 11. Okay? The preacher, in writing a book on wisdom, has a lot of assumption in these few verses on the history, the rich history prior to this. I just want to give you a few examples this morning. You know the story of the famous passage in Isaiah 6? The prophet Isaiah encounters the vision of God enthroned with angels worshiping him? Ask yourself a question, beloved. Does Isaiah spill forth words in that moment? No, here's his response. I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah's first reaction, I must shut my mouth before this God. I need to shut my lips. If they sputter words now, those words will fail me and out me as an utter wretch. That's his reaction to the holy God. Think of Moses prior to Solomon's writing this verse 11. He encounters the living presence of God in the bush of fire. It consumes itself. It's a mystery in its existence. And out of the flame, the voice of God addresses Moses. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And how does Moses react? Does he have many words? No. His response? Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. He didn't even think about speaking. He covered his mouth and his face and he hid himself from the presence of God's holiness. A peak and the righteous and blamelessness of God would just destroy him. You remember righteous and blameless Job? Not a murderer like Moses. Not a, a prophet cast aside like Isaiah. Just a man that we learn in the oldest account of Scripture. The oldest manuscripts are Job. And in the oldest account, there's this blameless and righteous character God gives approval of to Satan. And what happens, man? Job loses it. He loses his fortune. He loses his livelihood. His own children die. His wife curses him, tells him to die. For chapters on end, his friends show up. They're the worst. <laughs> They're the worst friends. They help him to no relief, no cause. And then God shows up and God speaks to him out of what? A whirlwind of power and furious holiness. That's how God speaks to Job. Does Job, in his righteousness and blamelessness, does he pick debate with God? Does he want to discuss the finer details of why he lost what he lost? Does he plan and petition and talk and reason in response with many words? No. Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. What was wisdom? For Job to shut up and dare not indict himself anymore before the holy God. One peek into the fury of God's power 
who created Leviathan and the war horse and stands on the seas. And Job, Job is fully aware what I considered to be awful, God. It's not. You're terrible. And your terribleness is somehow linked to my salvation, but I dare not, I dare not stand presumptuously. I'm broken and I'm ruined by it. Brother, sister, what I just gave you, three accounts, are a right response. They are not the regular response, though. What the preacher is saying is, is that these men, uh, that, that, like I just gave you an example of, they peaked at holiness and they got it in the moment. But what did they do? They, they, they strike rocks in anger later and they don't get the promised land, right? I mean, I mean they, they, they encounter God and they realize that all their blamelessness was nothing. They... They get outed like everyone else. And the preacher's context here is he's saying that my words that I'm telling you about your many words and what you think you understand about good and about pleasure and pleasing God, he's saying it needs to prepare you. It, Moses needed to be prepared. Job needed to be prepared. The, prof the prophet Isaiah needed to be prepared. And what are they all prepared for? I wish that after verse 9... A prophetic word of messianic text appeared in this, in this scripture, but it doesn't, okay? Instead, after the first half of the book, we get invited to remember it. We still don't have it figured out. That's where Ecclesiastes is going to go. But I want to finish a sermon this morning. And I want to finish it in the hope because what I love about Ecclesiastes is it is raw and it is nerve wracking and it is frustrating and it is difficult and it is full of riddle and it is promising this and then showing you it's bankrupt and you're just kind of head spin like, what do I do? I agree with you, man. My life is seriously in shambles all the time. And it primes the heart by just shredding any, any idea of self-sustainability and it demands you stare into heaven. Get your eyes above the sun. I mean, this text ended like chapter one in saying, what will there be after him under the sun? You don't want the answer. <laughs> you want to actually get above the sun. And what's above the sun is a God devising a plan at the time of this writing in Ecclesiastes, a God who does show Isaiah in chapter six that he's holy and to be feared and no one can stand before him. And yet he says also in that book that one would stand before him and on him would be the governance of everything. Every real leader prior to Jesus would try to uphold some form of pleasing goodness to God and it would crush him. And yet Jesus, who can uphold the world by his very words, is willing to be crushed under that weight of sin as a propitiation, as one of wisdom for us. I mean, this is where the preacher's context can help us still get to the gospel. I mean, brother and sister, do you not know or have you forgotten the message of the Christian gospel? It really is shuck your many words before God, give up your pleasures, give up your good and rest in the sovereignty of God. But the good preacher is here saying that you don't have it. We're saying Jesus comes. And when Jesus comes, God's only begotten son, he bears our sins in his body on the tree. The gospel is, is that we might die to sin and live to him. Okay, this is why Jesus's wounds heal when mine and your wounds only affirm our death. This is why Jesus's words will restore while our words joined with the preacher here, they neutralize it best and they destroy it worse. This is why Jesus' resurrection tells us what is good for man. 
while mine and your deaths, which are very normal, like everything that comes after us, remind us of what we deserve. This is why Jesus promised to raise you and me from the grave, to secure for us eternity with him. And the Father who gives hope in this life and an ability to face these things. I mean, the magnificence of God's holiness displayed in Jesus was holiness in action. Because for Jesus, to touch him meant your healing. To hear him in faith meant your salvation. To deny him or shout out crucify him, somehow in the mystery of God's wonderful atonement, meant your undeserved inclusion into his family if you would just repent of the very action that hung him on the tree. The good and the pleasing thing to God was his sacrifice on our behalf. Trust in him as the greatest gift. Receive every good gift from God thereafter. How do you rest in the sovereignty of God? You give up your restlessness to the cross and Jesus' restlessness of your sin, which ravaged him to the grave. You remember that. But then you realize that he rose again, not to come out and give you more restlessness, but to give you the rest, divine rest. I go to prepare a place for you, a place that my father accepts, a house, many rooms, a large table of the best wine, the best, the good life. I go to prepare it for you. Follow me. Let me change you. The sovereignty of God always changes people. Okay, the preacher is just showing how when we deny it, we end up in roundless discussion under the sun. But if we accept it for what it is, and we see it in Jesus, we gain everything. We gain all. We sing, who is like the Lord our God? And we mean it. We feel it. We know it. It changes us. As soon as we would give up hope in it, we can't. We cannot deny that which God has put in us. It's impossible. It was impossible to please him without faith. By faith, it is impossible to not please him. <laughs> you will please him if you're in Christ. He's already pleased if you're in Christ. The hope of heaven is yours. Grab it. Hold on to it. Don't forget it. Even when you mess up royally, when shadows pass from the day into the night, right? That discussion ended with this inevitable darkness and this. Blah. His answer is that only God stands before God. And in Christ, in Christ, you stand before God. So be not worried about the shadows. Don't fear them. There's strength and wisdom in him. We live and we walk in what God calls good now. We pursue what God is pleased with. We rest in his sovereign power and control. And I dare say we peek into his holiness and it is for us a gain now. I mean, do you realize that one day you will see him face to face? The light of heaven will fill all in all and you won't shrivel away. You'll do what God created you to do. And so it should change the way you live now, knowing God alone is wise and that in Christ you have gained his wisdom under the sun. Let's pray and then we'll respond to our good God. Lord, we thank you for the hope of scripture. Even the bleak and the seemingly hopeless preacher in Ecclesiastes 6, he has put our eyes where they belong. And that is to see that your holiness is, is, is terrible for us, but Christ. And so, Father, I pray that if any of us be ready to offer more words and more vanity as if we gain advantage before you, Father, silence our mouths. Father, shut 
us up in your holiness so that we, without a word, can see the Jesus who has died for us without a word. Never was he returning vile with vile, but in trust and in obedience to you, submitting himself wholly for us. A lamb sheared before uh, you, God, in total silence. You turning your face away so that you could gaze upon us for eternity. What gain? What, what do we have in this reward, God? It's, it's indescribable. And so, Lord, I pray that you would root your holiness deep in us, God, and grant us the ability to rightly respond and to never forget that you are good to us. Your gifts are wonderful. And, Father, we can enjoy them in you. So, Father, hear our song. Meet us in confession and in restitution, in assurance of pardon, God, and in commission today. God, meet us in the rest of this time. Send us forth into this world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.